Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. If I haven't met you before, I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here. It's my pleasure to to take us through the second week of our series in this final week of Jesus' life. And I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin. How do you go under pressure? How do you go under pressure? It's crazy, actually. I feel like whenever I preach, oftentimes God tests me in these very same things that I'm preaching on. And just this morning, our dog's gotten out and crazy stuff going on, and we're just figuring out how to get it back. Don't even know if we found her yet, but I'm like dealing with pressure right now before the service even begins. But I want to ask about more extreme pressures than that. Jesus in Luke 21, he talks about some serious pressure. He talks about the pressure of persecution. He talks about when when people confront you directly, oppose you to your face, even threaten your life for your beliefs in Jesus. He talks about the pressure of chaotic circumstances. He talks about famines and earthquakes and all sorts of natural disasters. And he talks about the pressure that we feel when great organizations and governments and powers and leaders fail and fall. How do you go under pressure? What about just the personal pressures of life, like losing a job, getting an unexpected diagnosis, knowing that your, your child is struggling at school and not really knowing how to deal with it? How do you do with pressure? If you at all struggle with dealing with pressure, you're going to want to hear what Jesus has to say. And he talks about some negative ways, some unhealthy ways that we can respond to pressure. We can be tempted to to give in, to just fall into complete fear and dread about what is happening. He talks about how we can be tempted to be just, just distract ourselves with pleasures and indulgences talks about drinking, getting drunk. I think modern day examples would also be just binging on Netflix, just distracting yourself with creature comforts, just just trying to forget about what's going on in the world. He even talks about walking away from him altogether. If we do not know what Jesus says in Luke 21, then we are opening ourselves up to all of those unhealthy responses. And this is exactly why we need to hear and understand what Jesus teaches in our passage today. And as we open up Luke 21, let's figure out where we are in the final week of Jesus' life. So Adam put this up last week. We're still at Tuesday. It's still Tuesday. And last week we looked at the utter brilliance of Jesus as he outwitted the scheming of the religious leaders. And now as they slink back into the shadows, Jesus takes this opportunity to leave his disciples with some really important lessons. Let's take a look at what we can learn from them. Four things that we're going to learn from what Jesus says today. If you're a note taker, you're welcome to write these down. Sorry about how long they are. The upside down victory of our first leaders. The crushing defeat of man-made religion the characteristic chaos of this present age and Jesus' call for watchfulness. Now, if you're paying attention to the verses that go along with the headings there, you'll notice that I'm dipping in and out of different passages. I'm not sort of 
going through them one by one as we go through the chapter. And the reason for that is because one of the difficult things we find in this chapter is that Jesus doesn't deal with the disciples' question in chronological order. So at the beginning of the chapter, they're looking at this temple in Jerusalem. They think it looks absolutely amazing. And they're telling Jesus, wow, isn't this amazing? And he wasn't that impressed. Actually, he said, not stone will be left upon another. It will be destroyed. And they were shocked by this. And they said, when will these things happen? When, when will this take place? And then Jesus doesn't give them a neat little chronological timeline from there about what to look for. In fact, he, he deals with two different things. He deals with the destruction of the temple, and he deals with the time of the end of his second coming. The destruction of the temple, which happened in the first century, and the time of his second coming. Craig Keener is a great New Testament scholar. He says, he explains it this way. He says, Old Testament prophets often grouped events together by their topic rather than their chronological proximity. And Jesus in this discourse, in this teaching, does the same. He addresses two separate questions, the time of the temple's destruction and the time of the end. Okay. Now, with that being said, let's take a look at how Jesus answers the disciples by looking at the first lesson, the upside-down victory of our first leaders. Now, the reason I say upside-down is because we wouldn't normally use the word victory to describe what Jesus says in these verses. But let's read some of it together. And remember, first and foremost, that when Jesus says this, he's speaking to the first leaders of the church. He's speaking to the apostles, his disciples. This is what he says to them. But before all this, it's before the time of the end, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Confronting stuff from Jesus. He was preparing the first leaders of the church for some really heavy things they were going to face. And Jesus' predictions were fulfilled even just in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, we read about the apostles Peter and John and how they were seized by the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus gave them such words of wisdom that it says in Acts 4 verses 13 to 14, that when they saw the courage of Peter and John and how they answered them and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Jesus did promise that he would give them words and wisdom that none of their adversaries would be able to resist or contradict. In Acts 12, the disciples were brought before a king, King Herod. Verses 1 to 2, it says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Jesus said that some of them would be put to death. The Apostle Paul himself admitted to 
his former life as a persecutor of the church. And he says in Acts 26, verse 11, many a time I went from synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. This is what the first leaders and many of our brothers and sisters in the early church went through. Terrible persecution. But why is Luke telling us this? Why is it important for us to know this? Why does he want us to know that Jesus predicted this and prepared the church's first witnesses for this? Well, remember who Luke was writing to. Adam, last week when he preached, he told us that Luke was writing to Theophilus to give him certainty about the things he was taught about Jesus. Luke wrote his gospel maybe 30 to 50 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. And Theophilus started following Jesus during this time, and he probably looked at the suffering and the persecution and the deaths of some of the key leaders of the church and the apostles, and he was wondering, what am I what have I got myself into? Like, is this really what victory looks like? Did Jesus really win? Can I trust what I have been taught? Why are we so persecuted? Why do we look so defeated? Luke records what Jesus predicted so that Theophilus would know that the persecution and the suffering of the church's great leaders was not evidence of defeat, but part of what it means to follow Jesus in this age. If Jesus' journey to the resurrection, to that victory, went through the agony of the cross, should we not expect that our journey to the resurrection will not be carefree and comfortable? The first leaders of our faith experienced suffering and difficulty, and this wasn't a surprise. Jesus predicted it, and Luke wants us to know that was all part of the plan But more than that, he wants us to know that their perseverance through it was the victory. Jesus said in Luke 21 verse 19, stand firm and you will win life. Victory didn't look like beating back their enemies. Victory didn't look like avoiding persecution. Victory looked like simply standing firm witnessing to the fact that Jesus is king. He has risen and he will return to right all wrongs and this was their upside down victory, their perseverance in their witness. And they are, model, they are a model of what victory looks like for us today. Victory is not getting even. Victory is not enjoying power and influence. Victory is humbly and confidently persevering in our witness that Jesus is king. Victory is loving our persecutors and not giving in to intimidation, but holding fast to our confidence in Jesus, even when the pressure builds up. The upside down victory of our first leaders is a model for us on what success looks like when we face ridicule and persecution. But before we move on to the next point, I wonder if there might be some of you who are still caught up in verse 18 where it says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, some of you might be thinking, really? Like, this is why I don't believe the Bible. It it contradicts itself. 
But it doesn't take much to see that Jesus is not promising physical protection here. He literally told them two verses earlier that some of them would be put to death. He's not so foolish that he'd make two contradictory promises in two sentences. What he is promising in picture language is that when he returns, they will not be caught up in his justice against evil. They will not be put to death then. If they stand firm and hold fast to the gospel, they will win life, true life, eternal life that cannot be taken away by anyone. It's like in John, Jesus says, anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's the upside down victory of our first leaders. The next lesson that we look at is the crushing defeat of man-made religion. And this is where Jesus actually answers the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple. Here's what he says. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the disciples wanted to know when the temple would fall. And Jesus, very helpfully, doesn't really give them a roadmap. He just says, when you see it being surrounded by armies. Okay, thanks, Jesus. We didn't really need to know that. But he does tell them what it would look like. And this must have totally, totally shocked the disciples. I wish I had the time to put together a bit of a presentation of what that second temple was like. So there's two temples, one built by Solomon that was destroyed by Babylon. Then it was rebuilt and a lot of money was poured into it by King Herod. And apparently it was so impressive, it was like 10 to 14 stories high. And I think Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about when you're, when you're coming from the distance, the sun would gleam against the white marble so brilliantly, it would, it would hit your eyes and blind you, that the temple was covered with gold plates. It was, it was beautiful, it was impressive. As you approached the city, it was the, the first thing you would see. It was amazing. But aside from that, J.C. Ryle, an English pastor, helps us to understand the religious significance of the temple. He says, how strange and startling Jesus' words must have sounded to Jewish ears. An English mind can hardly conceive. They were spoken of a building which every Israelite regarded with almost idolatrous veneration. They were spoken of a building which contained the ark, the holy of holies, and the symbolic furniture formed on a pattern given by God himself. They were spoken of a building towards which every devout Jew turned their face in every quarter of the world when they offered up their daily prayers. They were spoken of this amazing building in Jerusalem. Jesus said it would be destroyed. And 40 years after Jesus pronounced this judgment, it happened. If you read up on history, you will know that the Jews, they rebelled against the Roman Empire and slowly Rome squeezed them in until eventually they squeezed them all the way into Jerusalem and they set up a siege. 
and eventually Titus, the son of Emperor Vespasian, oversaw the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And Josephus, that first century historian, not a Christian, but he was Jewish, wrote a lot about this event. Here is one of his descriptions, just to give you an idea of the horror of it. He said, thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. And the seditious were still more irritated by the calamities they were under, even while the famine preyed upon them. So they cut off, the Romans cut off supplies and they were starving inside the city. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench. The siege was heartbreaking. It was horrific. And no wonder Jesus mourned over Jerusalem a few chapters earlier. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. The disciples were impressed with the temple, but Jesus wasn't. He saw that behind the impressive facade was a spiritually desolate religious system. And he pronounced God's judgment upon it as God had promised so often throughout the Old Testament that he would judge them if they did not turn to him and recognize his coming. So what can we learn from this? What's this supposed to teach us? Well, this isn't a prophecy of something still to be fulfilled that we need to chart on a map. This is a prophecy fulfilled. And what does it teach us? Well, I think it teaches us not to fall for appearances. The disciples were impressed. Jesus saw through it. It teaches us not to trust in human power, to be impressed by the power of Herod, the wealth of Herod in creating this magnificent temple. It teaches us not to trust in religious achievements or even church leaders for our right standing with God. Sometimes pastors and teachers and churches can look impressive from the outside. We can look at them, we can say, wow, look how impressive they are. Look at this pastor or this church that I follow online. But we need to admit to ourselves that we don't actually know these people unless we're walking with them personally. It's wonderful if you've got a, a favorite teacher that you follow online that you've been listening to for years, but if you've only ever watched them online or listened to them preach, you don't know them personally, privately. It's a lesson that we still need to learn as Christians today. <clears throat> One of the deeply sad stories that has come out recently is the story of Ravi Zacharias. Now, I'm sure many of you do know him, but if you don't know Ravi, he was a renowned evangelist. He was a defender of the faith. He was the head of Azim, which is Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And he traveled around the world speaking to people about Jesus and answering um, skeptics' questions about him. And I didn't personally follow him, but I've seen a few clips and when I saw him responding to skeptics, uh, I always thought he seemed so kind, so gracious, so winsome, not defensive. He was articulate. He was eloquent. I just thought he was an impressive guy and he seemed like a really great guy. 
He died recently and the Christian world mourned his death. But shortly thereafter, Azim, the ministry that he left behind, decided that they had to do an independent investigation on his life because of all the allegations that were coming up. So they hired an independent agency called Miller and Martin who uh, did an investigation and released a report that was damning, very sad. Um, It shows for years that he was secretly preying upon vulnerable women and using ministry funds to keep them quiet and all sorts of other things that were going on. And this has sent a shockwave through the Christian world and it makes us uncomfortable. And that's okay, We're, we're meant to feel that in these times. It reminds us that the important point that looks can be deceiving. As Christians, we need to remember what the Bible teaches about sin. Genesis 1 says we've created good, but Genesis 3 says Adam and Eve rebelled, sin entered into our story, and we're all marred by that. No one in this life is worth our unreserved trust and faith. That is reserved for Jesus alone. We're not, we don't need to become cynical and think every leader and every pastor or whatever is just all horrible people. But we shouldn't be naive. We need to remember that during this age, people are both a mixture of the good image of God and the corruption of sin. Now that we're in Christ, Romans 6 says that we've been set free from sin That's a truth that we can hold on to and we can progress in this life. We can become more and more like Jesus. But 1 John 1 reminds us still that we'll never be fully rid of it in our life. So let's not be cynical. Let's not be naive, but let's be wise. Let's remember that looks can be deceiving and that no leader, pastor, or religious establishment is so perfect that we should place our unreserved faith in them. That kind of faith is reserved for Jesus Alone, That kind of faith is reserved for Jesus' trustworthy words in the Bible. Let's stake our lives on Jesus alone. He alone will never let us down. This is the second lesson we learn in the crushing defeat of man-made religion. The third thing Jesus teaches us is about the characteristic chaos of this present age. So at different stages in our passage, Jesus talks about the events leading up to the end, to that time when he returns to do justice and to reunite heaven and earth. And he says this, verses 8 to 11, he says, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, quakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Picking it up again in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for their heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, 
because your redemption is drawing near. Okay, we're running out of time, so I just want to give you some really quick explanations about that passage, just to, just to help us understand that really quick. So it says in verse 8, watch out that you're not deceived. There are many people who are going to come in my name claiming, I am he. So in other words, there are many people who are going to come along and pretend that they're the Messiah, that they're Jesus come back. Or there'll be people coming along saying, Jesus is here. Have you not heard? And, and trying to get you to believe that. Now, Jesus says earlier in Luke that his coming will be like the lightning dashing across the sky from the east to west. In other words, it's going to be so obvious, no one will have to convince you of it. You don't need to worry about that. When Jesus returns, you will know it. He talks about when you hear of wars and uprisings. Those things have been happening ever since Jesus ascended to heaven. He says, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. The end when Jesus returns. Just a quick point here. We've been living in the end times since Jesus ascended to heaven. The end times is not a time still to come. We're already in the end times. These things have been happening. Verse 10, he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Yep, that's been happening. There'll be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. I want to explain that a little bit more. Great signs from heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, jump to verse 25, he elaborates a bit more. He said, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So the point I want to make here is that those heavenly signs could very well be literal. God could very well do stuff to the sun and to the heavens and to the seas, but it also may be metaphorical. And that's where I personally land, because in the Old Testament, uh, some of the prophets would talk about stars and, and heavenly bodies, and they would use that as picture language to describe kingdoms and rulers and leaders. So just one example of that I can give you is in Daniel chapter 8. I'll just read verses 9 to 10 for you. This is one of Daniel's visions. And he says, out of one of them came another horn. It's a vision, so that's a picture. The horn is a picture for a kingdom. Which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Verse 10, it grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Who were these starry hosts that it trampled on? Well, as you read through the chapter, the interpretation of the vision is given. And this, this horn that grew up, this kingdom, the ones that they're trampling on and giving trouble to are other kingdoms and other powers in this world. I think it really makes a lot of sense to see that these the shaking of the heavens and stuff going on the sun and moon and stars is picture language for saying that the powers of this world, the governments, the great kingdoms will be shaken. It'll be chaotic. Please, people will rise and fall from power. Tom Wright, a New Testament scholar, he said, signs in the sun, moon and stars might well be taken literally, but such a phrase could easily mean that the great nations and the kingdoms of the earth would be, as we say in our own picture language, going through convulsions. After Nero's suicide in 68, four emperors followed in quick succession, each one at the head of an army. The much-vaunted Roman peace that Augustus and his successors claimed to have brought to the world was shattered from the inside. A convulsive shudder went throughout the whole known world. 
So the main point Jesus makes in these verses is that in this present age, between his first and second comings, it will be characterized by chaotic and and frightening moments. Whether the quick shifting of powers in the Roman Empire, whether it's the fall of Berlin Wall in 1989, or frightening earthquakes, or pandemics like COVID-19, this present age will be characterized by chaotic moments. It's a little bit like a sick old man who is passing away. And as this man that we know is passing away, we, we see him go through these convulsions, these fits from time to time. And it's scary. It's not nice to look at. But it reminds us that he is dying. And that's kind of a picture of this present age. It's like a sick old man. And in this age, when we go through chaotic events like World War II, COVID-19 pandemics, it reminds us that another convulsion has just happened, that this age is on its way to passing away and Jesus' return is yet nearer. This is what Jesus wants us to do with the chaotic events of the world. This is how he wants us to interpret them. God is not shocked by these events. God's plan hasn't failed. He is sovereign over these events. Jesus tells us they will happen. So instead of giving into terror or distracting ourselves with pleasures or despairing, we are told instead to verse 28, Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The convulsions of this world serve as a reminder that Jesus will return, that his coming to heal this world is yet nearer. And they test just how much we've tied ourselves, our hearts to this present age. When we go through a terrible shock, how do we respond to that? Do we, do we despair because everything, all of our hopes for this present world have been threatened? Or do we stand up, look ahead to Jesus' return, and, and take courage knowing that he is yet nearer? This is the third lesson Jesus teaches us. The fourth and final thing Jesus leaves us with is his call for watchfulness. His call for watchfulness. It says in verses 34 to 36, Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, uncontrolled drinking, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So in the original Greek text, there are only two commands in this passage. It looks like there's a few more, but there are only two commands. Prosechete heatois, which is pay attention to yourselves, and agrupnete, which is be alert, be alert, be vigilant. Pay attention to yourselves, be alert, be vigilant. Those are very similar in meaning, and we can simplify that by saying Jesus commands us to do two types of watching in this passage. He commands us to watch ourselves and he commands us to watch for his return. Two types of watching. We're to keep one eye on ourselves, to watch our own life. Jesus warns us about getting drunk and the Greek word behind carousing describes not only uncontrolled drinking but the the headache and the hangover that we experience the next day. He talks about being weighed down with the anxieties of life. All of us face personal troubles in this life. 
but are we so weighed down by them that we've forgotten the bigger story that we are a part of, that we are people of Jesus' kingdom? Are we praying that line from the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come? Are you watching and hoping for Jesus' return? We're to watch ourselves. We're also to watch for Jesus' return. For some, it will be dreadful because they won't be prepared. It will close on them like a trap. Will that be you? Or are you watching for Jesus? He fleshes out how our watching should look like, what it looks like in verse 36, when he says, be always on the watch and pray. There's only one command there. It's literally, be always on the watch, praying. This is how we watch for Jesus, through prayer. How are you going in this area? Are you praying that line from the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come? When the world convulses, do you curse the chaos? Do you distract yourself with alcohol, Netflix, creature comforts? Or do you turn to prayer, asking Jesus to come, to bring his kingdom, to heal our world, and to help you stand when he returns? This is what Jesus is asking for in his call for watchfulness, to watch ourselves and to watch expectantly, prayerfully, for his return. So we've covered a lot. We've learned four lessons. The upside down victory of our first leaders taught us that Jesus' pattern for success has always involved suffering. The crushing defeat of man-made religion taught us that Jesus alone is worthy of our trust. Nothing else will count in the final judgment. The characteristic chaos of this present age taught us that we shouldn't be surprised by chaos, each chaotic event is actually a sign that Jesus is coming soon. And the call for watchfulness. In the midst of suffering and chaos, we are called to be all the more watchful, to watch our own lives and faithfulness, and to watch for Jesus' return through prayer. So this sounds like a lot. How can we stay faithful? How can we do this? Well, Jesus is our answer. Jesus spoke these things on Tuesday, only three days before his death on Friday. And even though the temple was spiritually desolate, Jesus was going to be treated as the spiritually desolate one. In just a few days, he was going to be treated as a false messiah, a spiritual pretender. He was going to confront the persecutors of the apostles before they even had the guts to face them themselves. And his body was the true temple, which would be destroyed at the cross. Why would he do all of this? Why would he undergo a spiritual judgment even worse than the destruction of Jerusalem? Why? To save us. And to save us from two things. God's righteous judgment against our own hypocrisy and self-made religion and to save us from the architects of the chaos we suffer from. The architects, Satan, sin, and death. He came to save us from God's righteous judgment and to save us from our enemies, the architects of chaos, Satan, sin, and death. God in Jesus drank his own medicine, so to speak. He went through our judgment so that his children would never have to experience that spiritual ruin. God in Jesus confronted our enemies by taking the place 
of the guilty and letting these enemies do their worst to him so that he would release his children from their power. In these end times, we will face chaos and difficulty and suffering, but in times of great change and hardship, King Jesus has not been dethroned, but promises to come and vindicate his people. King Jesus has not been dethroned, but promises to come and to vindicate his people. He has won, and he will establish that victory over this world fully when he returns. So how do you go under pressure? How do you go when people malign your faith, when natural disasters and diseases are wreaking havoc, when big banks and world powers implode? Because of Jesus and his spirit in you, you can stand, you can persevere, and you can know that a day is coming when Jesus will return and make all things right. One of the ways we receive Jesus' life-sustaining grace and look forward to the day of his return is through the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read to us about the Lord's Supper from Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In the Lord's Supper, we eat bread and we drink from the cup. And these two things are symbols of the gospel. The bread, it symbolized Jesus' body as he gave that up for us at the cross. The cup, it symbolizes the blood that Jesus shed for us at the cross to cleanse us from all impurity and sin. And when we eat and drink these things, we by faith receive the gospel afresh. We by faith spiritually feed and all that Jesus has secured for us through his death. He left us with this to encourage us, to remind us of what he did for us. And when we eat, we also remember the great feast that he promises in Revelation 19. And he even alluded to it in those verses I read just earlier. He said, he will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. But when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness, it will be such a victory. It will be so beautiful that we will be celebrating and we will feast with Jesus and you will drink the best wine that you have ever had in your life as you celebrate with him.